There we are. Now I'm on, Ernest. He was twiddling all sorts of dials back there trying to figure out what the problem was. So um, I, I will say, oh, that's very loud now, Ernest. <coughs> um, that, that one of the things that has changed since you were here last week, uh, maybe is these screens <laughs> look a little different, but also if you uh, are able to look at the, the back of the auditorium there, you'll see up high there are two new cameras uh, that we have, have mounted on the back wall. And uh, so we are moving towards uh, being able to stream this service. Uh, so our online worship service, instead of being pre-recorded, will simply be a stream of what happens here. And uh, people will be watching, watching this. And so uh, we're making progress, and uh, we've got a bunch of new equipment in the, the AV room back there to facilitate that and uh, train. We'll do some more training and practice runs, and we'll let you know when that actually uh, begins going out on, on YouTube. But uh, hopefully within the next month or so, that'll be, we'll feel competent to uh, manage that technology. Appreciate Ernest. Ernest has done a lot of work over the, uh, not just the past week, but uh, this year, really, and maybe earlier than that, in getting that organized, getting it purchased. And uh, so uh, thank you, Ernest, for all of that that work. In Exodus chapter 34, it's one of the, what I believe are the most important verses in Scripture. Uh, I have trouble identifying favorite verses. Um, I, I just don't do favorites very well. But I do think this is an important one. Moses, you may remember, received the Ten Commandments from God. Uh, comes down the mountain and finds that the people are worshipping a golden calf. So he's so angry, he smashes those stone tablets that the commandments are written on. He throws them down on the ground in disgust, not at the commandments, but at the people. Um, and that means that he later has to go back up the mountain. And when he goes back up the mountain... This time, instead of God writing them, Moses has to chisel them out of the rock. So in verse 4 of Exodus 34, we have, we're told that Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones. And he went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord commanded him and carried the two stone tablets in his hand. And then this is what happens. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him. And proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. The reason... I believe these verses are so important, is that rather than the human authors describing God, which is certainly perfectly fine and approved by God, here we have God in his own words choosing to reveal himself to Moses. And, and how does God choose to reveal himself? And so I know I've preached on this before, 
And, uh, and, and I think there's a lot to be gained by knowing these verses. But in what we see in verse uh, 5 is the Lord comes down in the cloud. Um, sorry, it starts in verse 6. He passed in front of Moses. And so there's like this parade, if you will, as God says, here's who I am. And on the first float of the parade is the compassionate and gracious. On the second float, there's the slow to anger. And, and he reveals himself in this way as he passes in front of Moses. Over in 1 Kings, and uh, I don't have the... I had a short week this week, so there's no slides of these passages. 1 Kings chapter 19. We have a similar event that takes place here. The prophet Elijah has had a showdown with the prophets of Baal. And uh, fire has come from heaven, has consumed the prophets of Baal. And you would think that Elijah is celebrating. Instead, he says, oh no, Queen Jezebel is going to be so upset with me now that her prophets are destroyed. And so he, he knows he's done the right thing, but then he takes off and uh, runs away. And he goes out and he hides in the desert and uh, doesn't really know what to do next. He's feeling despondent and isolated. And then in, in verses 11 and 12, we see that uh, God uh, comes to talk to him. And uh, the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And it was there that God revealed himself. As each of these passed by Elijah, God passed by as a gentle whisper. And then we come to the Gospels, to the life of Jesus. And in Mark chapter 6, starting here in verse 45, we're told that immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after leaving them, he went up a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. We're going to spend the next few weeks looking at this story here in in Mark 6, but uh, also the parallel account in Matthew. Matthew is the account that describes Peter, the apostle, getting out of the boat uh, to meet Jesus on the water. But, uh, and, and so we're going to, to look at this story and what it means, examine what it means to walk by faith. That's our theme as a church this year, is walking by faith. And uh, because we don't know what the year is going to entail was why we selected it. Uh, we know we want to live for him. We want to honor God. But we can't make all our plans at the beginning of the year. 
knowing when we're going to wear masks and when we're not, knowing when we're going to be in hospital and when we're not, knowing what's going to happen in the future. Uh, as I go through this material, I'm going to be um, leaning on a book that is uh, written by John Ortberg. It's titled, If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat. So if you've read that and you see some similarities, there may be a reason for that. But if you know the story of Jesus walking across the surface of the Sea of Galilee, you may wonder why did he do it? Why did Jesus walk on the water? Was he showing off? Was he being silly? Was he, he playing with them and, and sneaking up on them? You know, and he was going to come out, poke his head over the side of the boat and go, boo, you know, and try to scare them. Uh, was he giving them a race just because he could? Right? I can't wait for you guys. I'm just getting over the other side. Maybe he needed to get there first so he could sleep. I don't know. There's lots of possibilities, aren't there? But I want to just kind of maybe dwell on a possibility. And we're not told, right? It's never spelled out for us. But Mark, in his account in verse 48, says that he was walking on the lake and he was about to pass by them. And I think there is this sense that this idea of passing by them is similar to what God did with Moses and with Elijah. It's a revealing of who he is. It's only found in Mark's account, but it gives us this context for all that's going to come. How will the disciples respond to this revelation of who Jesus is? He demonstrates here something that no one else in history has done, and he does so in the middle of a fierce storm. Now, there was no one else out there on the middle of the lake, in the middle of the night, in the middle of a storm. There were no spectators. There were no paparazzi like Moses on Sinai and Elijah on his mountain. This was a revelation between God and his closest disciples. So how did we reach this point, this place in the middle of the lake, this moment as Jesus is walking past a boat filled with disciples. If you look back in your Bibles, most of you will have a heading and just before verse 30 of Mark 6. And it'll say something along the lines of Jesus feeds the 5,000. So many of us are familiar with this story as Jesus takes five loaves and two fish and miraculously multiplies them in order to feed this crowd that has gathered to hear him speak. But verse 45 picks up immediately after that. They've just gathered up all the scraps, put them into baskets, and then we're told immediately Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. The first thing to note is that the reason the apostles find themselves in a boat, in the dark, in the middle of a storm, is because they're obeying Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I like to think that obeying Jesus makes my life easier and happier. Right? In my head, at least, I like to think that baptism comes with a lazy boy. 
a nice crackling fireplace, a good book, and a self-driving snowblower. And I am set, right? That is, that, that's what following Jesus is like. And yet, Jesus says to these disciples, He says, I want you to get in the boat and cross. And when they do, it's not a self-propelled boat. They head into a storm that is blowing in the opposite direction. You see, I wonder if the twelve didn't expect something different. If you will look back earlier in chapter 6, you would see that John the baptizer had just been executed. But Jesus had just fed 5,000 men, plus women and children. He'd performed this great miracle. Their bellies are full, right? They're, they're, they're on this jaunt across the lake. Life is pretty good. They're following someone that can multiply food as well as all the other miracles they've seen him done. Somebody who is um, looking to challenge the power and authority of the, the Romans who are occupying the country. Nothing can stop them. They've made the right choices. And then the wind begins to blow. And so while these events are unfolding on the lake, where's Jesus? He's up the mountain praying. And as we read through the Gospels, we find that Jesus often likes to uh, retreat in solitude to spend time praying with God. And would you like to know what Jesus was praying about while he was up on the mountain? Was he praying for the hearts of the 5,000 people that he just fed? Was he praying that their hearts and mind might be as filled with the love of God as the bellies were with the food and the bread and the fish? Was he just refreshing himself? after an exhausting day with the crowds? Was he planning with his father the next step in the development of the twelve? What do I do next, God? What do I teach them? What do I reveal? What do I show them next? Or maybe he was praying for the twelve to be safe in the storm. I'd like to know what he was praying, but we're not told. What we see, though, is that Jesus' time in prayer doesn't make him passive. Instead, it seems to energize him. He leaves the mountainside, and we're, we're told that he comes to the edge of the lake. He sees the disciples straining at the oars because of the wind. They weren't able to sail across the lake. They now had to row it into a headwind. And he decides that this is the moment to reveal himself to his closest disciples. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. And so I want to just recap for a moment where, what we have going on here. The first thing is that obeying Jesus doesn't guarantee safety and comfort. The disciples can attest to that. The second thing is that Jesus values prayer. But the third thing is that prayer energizes Jesus. He didn't just stay on the mountain praying for God to be with the disciples in their storm. Jesus goes out into the storm with them. Earlier in our service this morning, we read Psalm 97. Verse 10 of that psalm 
says this. Let those who love the Lord hate evil. All right, that sounds good, doesn't it? Let's keep reading them. For he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. That's a little challenging. In light of the, the racial hatred, the violent shootings that we've witnessed over the last couple of weeks, I think we're entitled to take this verse and say, God, I've got a couple of questions about this. And other verses that are like it. Because it sounds on first glance as though God is guaranteeing that all believers will live full and peaceful lives protected from violence and hatred. And yet our experience says, uh-uh. Uh-uh. There was no guarantee that there weren't Christians in that top store. No guarantees that there weren't Christians in that elementary school. No guarantee that there aren't Christians in the way of conflict in Ukraine. There is no guarantee that all Christians will be exempt from the impact of violence and wickedness. Now, there's a lot that can be, that we could have a long conversation about the reason for suffering in the world, God's role in it, and the Christian response to it. Now, if you're interested in that, I'd love to have that conversation with you. But for the moment, I just want to, to say this is not the complete answer, but it's part of an answer that, that when we read something like that, particularly in the Psalms or in Proverbs, we need to understand that we're reading poetry. And, and, and poetry or wisdom, by its nature, tends to exaggerate a lot of time. It, it makes statements that it describes things that are often true. And I think we could say that God has often rescued us from difficult situations. But it's not a guarantee that God will always rescue us. And, and so we, when we come to Psalms or Proverbs or those type of books, we have to say, yeah, I can sing this song. I can amen this psalm because I know that it is often true. But we also have to recognize and acknowledge that it's not always true. It's not guaranteed. Now, there are many ways, though, that following Jesus does simplify our lives. But there are still times where we'll encounter storms on our journey. In the wake of the shootings in Buffalo and, and Texas, I've seen people or heard people making the same statements that are often made after natural disasters. They run along the lines of, we don't need your thoughts and prayers. We need tangible assistance, we need your presence, we need your generosity, we need housing and roofing and clothing and all these other things. Of course, with loss of life, we can't bring that back. Maybe people say, we don't want your wishes, we want your action. We want to prevent this from happening in the future, however the best way of doing that might be. But this type of, of statement, while I think it's, it's very understandable, it troubles me for two reasons. First, it troubles me because I believe that there is tremendous power in prayer. That, that coming to God and asking Him, seeking Him to involve Himself in the affairs of humanity, to come into the messes that we've created, to bring peace and His presence in those places, is, is one of the most powerful things that we can do. But the second reason 
it troubles me is because apparently Christians are more known for our pious prayers than we are for our tangible assistance. And, and, and I, say this, I say this next thing a, a little tongue-in-cheek, but I wonder if too many followers of Jesus have taken James 2.16 as an instruction rather than a rebuke. James 2.16 says this. It says, If one of you says to a brother or sister without clothes and daily food, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? And, and I wonder if churches and Christians haven't somehow developed this reputation amongst outsiders, amongst people who are looking at us, as, as people who will say, we'll pray for you. And maybe we do and maybe we don't, but, but that's it. That we say, go in peace, we'll pray for you. Be fed, be sheltered, be comforted. But we do nothing about their physical needs, nothing about nothing tangible for their needs. And James and God through James says, what good is it? And so if churches and Christians see societal disasters and our response is limited to the wonderful, valuable act of praying to an all-powerful God without lifting a finger to work towards change ourselves, then what good is it? And so, yes, as, as Christians, as people of God, we are certainly focused on the kingdom of God. But we can't ignore the kingdom that we live amongst in the process. Jesus prayed, spent the night in prayer, probably prayed more than we pray, right? But he walked out on the lake because he knew that his disciples needed him. He knew it was time to reveal some more of who he was. He knew that their faith was struggling in that moment. That they didn't understand why they were there in that storm. And as he walks and as he passes by, they see something about him that they hadn't imagined before. There'd been other prophets who had healed people. There'd been other prophets even who'd multiplied food. But no one had walked on water before. So we need to pray. We need that prayer to energize us, though, as we love others for God. Our prayer should not just be that God does something for other people, but that God helps us to do something for other people. I don't have realistic answers for how to eliminate gun violence in the United States. I don't have realistic answers for removing all hatred, and all despair from the hearts of hurting people across this country. But that doesn't mean that as a church we have no answers for these situations. I believe that the church offers all people a place to belong and to be valued. And while these are important needs that every individual has, I want to suggest that they're particularly urgent for young people. I want to encourage all of us here today to pray for this nation. Pray for the cessation of violence across the globe. But they're big prayers, aren't they? That can be overwhelming. I mean, we entrust that to God. But there's not a lot that we can do 
about those things. And so I want to bring it down to something that is more manageable for us. And I, I want to ask, will you pray this week? Maybe not just this week, but let's start with this week. Will you pray for our community and its young people? Will you pray for this church and its young people? This week in the prayer list that we send out, I'm going to include a, a list of the uh, students that we have here at Lawson Road. Either some of them maybe haven't been here for a while, but we've had contact with recently. And so I want to ask, will you pray for that list? Will you make a point of opening that email, of, of opening that document and praying through that list? But then, you see, that's the easy part. I know for some of you, opening that email is the difficult part. But, but that's really the easy part. Okay? Because then, having prayed for them, will you make an effort to invest in the lives of those children, youth, college, and young adults? Will you invest in them in, in every way, but more than anything, invest relationally in their lives with one, two, three? I don't know what your capacity is. Young people who need a caring Christian adult in their lives. The Fuller Youth Institute is part of a Fuller Seminary out in uh, California. Uh, it's a, a Christian school there, and it's done a lot of research over the years. It's come to the conclusion uh, of working with, with youth and getting outcomes of, keeping, of helping children to keep their faith, but also just to be healthy adults, to make the transition to adulthood in a healthy way. Uh, that every young person needs at least five adults in their lives. Um, let me just see if we get that. Five adults in their lives. This is beyond their parents or guardians, beyond their nuclear family. And so they're adults whom they trust and whom they can count on. And it doesn't take any special skills, it simply takes a willingness to be present, it takes a willingness to be consistent. It takes a willingness to be non-judgmental, to recognize that young people are going to do dumb things. Sometimes we just need to be there for them. There will be plenty of people telling them how dumb it was, but that doesn't need necessarily to be us. It needs people to be humble, to, to say, yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. That's a good one. That's a good one. And maybe we can find it out together or we can pray about it. And, and that might sound intimidating. And if it sounds intimidating to you, I want to show you it sounds intimidating to the young people as well. <laughs> Maybe even more intimidating to think they're going to have an adult that cares about them and is involved in their lives. But young people are not problems to be solved. No matter what age you are, young people need caring Christian adults who are willing to journey with them through the crazy years of adolescence and young adulthood. And so I want to suggest it could be something as simple as saying from that list of students that we give you, or, or even extending into young adulthood, of saying, you know, I think I could connect with that person. I can pray for them. I can be aware of when their birthday is. Uh, it doesn't have to be a one-on-one -on -one thing. You could say, I'll have their family 
I'll, I'll do something with their family for dinner. Or in the summer, well, what if we, their family and, and my family went to a ball game together? Or so it's just being present in their lives, establishing trust and care. Because if we can invest in our young people in this way, if we can make the church like this, that, that welcomes not just people who are like us, but people who are different in age as well as all the others, then we offer those that are disenfranchised with society, those who are struggling, those who are hurting, we say, come here because there are people who will care about you, who will show you God's love. And, and a ratio of five to one, it means that you don't have to be the answer for everything because there are four other people, hopefully four other adults also, investing, as well as the parents and guardians, in that child's life. You just need to be one of the five. And so, yes, you can do something. You can befriend a young person. It doesn't have to be in the church. It could be in your neighborhood. It could be someone you meet at the gym. It could be all sorts of different places. You can show up. You can be one of the five for a young person. And you never know the difference that that can make in their lives, in our city, and in our world. Because life, even Christian life, can be hard. To get through it, we need prayer. We also need action. Because I believe the church can and should be part of the solution. Will you be part of God's solution? Let us not prepare ourselves to partake.